Welcome to Fellowship Safaris, conversations about people of color and their journeys to subspecialist training in their countries of origin and around the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Fellowship Safaris. I'm your host, Jerry Kariajahi. Today is a day that I hold near and dear to my heart. I have had the opportunity to work with the next guest and work uh, under his supervision and leadership, both in the place that I am formerly employed, as well as other out-of-hospital institutional work that we do together with his guidance and also with his support on a number of projects. And I'd like to be able to invite him to introduce himself and what his professional qualifications are and what he did for fellowship. Thank you very much, Jerry. Uh, my name is Thomas Nguere. I am a pediatrician and uh, endocrinologist. Uh, I also work as um, head of clinical services in one of our pediatric hospitals, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'll ask Dr. Nguiri, why pediatrics? What made you pick pediatrics as a specialty? <laughs> I think that was somewhere ingrained in my DNA. Uh, ever since I was growing up, uh, I had a few role models uh, who were greatly admired. And to me, pediatrics was a natural choice. I never really thought about anything else. Oh, wow. And what stood out the most from these role models that you had that made you sort of like direct towards pediatrics? I think professionally, they were highly regarded. Uh, mm. They were very thorough. And um, some of them were my doctors as I was growing up as a child. Um, so I really admired how they conducted themselves. And I also found that uh, dealing with children... Uh, came with challenges, but also was extremely rewarding. Yeah, true that. So I, I wanted to share in part of that reward. In that reward. No, that's really amazing. I think one of the things that I found also as a pediatrician is that I find them to be the easiest population to work with because you know when they are getting better and you know when they're when they're completely down, there's uh, no gray areas in between. So from pediatrics, how long was it before you started thinking about subspecialization? Uh, after pediatrics, almost immediately, within a year, I had started thinking about specialization. And actually, I would say perhaps that crossed my mind even during my residency training. So I had it somewhere in the back of my mind, but I, do, I didn't do anything about it until um, maybe just when I finished uh, residency. So I would say immediately after residency, I was on my journey hunting for fellowship. Mm -hmm. And why endocrinology? There are so many people who think about it as one of the most intricate subspecialties in pediatrics. So why endocrinology for you? Uh, I think um, that kind of intricate and the complexities that come with the chemistry of it all kind of mesmerize me. But also I'd watched a few of our senior colleagues who taught us endocrinology at uh, undergraduate level even. And I was just amazed at uh, what they seemed to know. And uh, that kind of held me in awe. But 
coming out closer to finishing my pediatrics training, I realized the um, challenges that there were in dealing with children with endocrine conditions because we were really reliant on adult endocrinologists. And I could see that it was very hard for most people to actually come through with proper diagnosis and institute proper treatment plans. So I felt there was a need. And looking at the country at the time of almost 40 million people and not having a single pediatric endocrinologist, I felt there must be a need out there and uh, somebody needs to find it. Do you remember what year this was by the time you were starting to think about this and we were just at the point where there were no pediatric endocrinologists? Uh, this was all the way from 2005 uh, wow. and 2006, yes. You know, you know, when you mentioned that, I actually thought you would have said 1990-something or... But 2000 is not... It's not that... Okay, well, it's not that long ago. We were already in the next century. Yes, we're in the new millennium and there was really no pediatric endocrinologist in the country. And there seemed to have been no plan whatsoever for anyone going in that direction. So we really did have a gap. And how did you end up landing on a fellowship that you were happy with or able to connect with? First, um, I had a few false starts. I had mm-hmm. shared my desire to study endocrinology with uh, a senior colleague. And um, he was kind enough in one of his international travels to have met a team. And they told him they had a program. And he came straight back and uh, connected me with a team from New Orleans. And I made my first application for a formal training to New Orleans. As fate would have it, uh, almost immediately after we initiated our communication, there was a Hurricane Katrina, which literally swamped New Orleans, including the medical school I was supposed to go to training. No. And uh, even communicating via email became impossible. And we had this nine-month gap where I didn't hear anything from them. Yeah, I didn't even know if they were still alive. And they wrote back uh, that much later and said, look, we got swamped. We have been dealing with emergencies. Our school and hospital has been under the water. And so we couldn't even think about uh, fellowship training. That's why we, our trail went cold. And they needed to rebuild the institution almost from scratch. So that definitely was not an option anymore. Yeah. But then, yeah, interestingly, as I was on my struggles looking for a school, the European Society for Pediatric Endocrinology, called ESPE, came calling. And uh, they came to Kenya, and they had also noticed from their own studies that there was really no activity in pediatric endocrinology on the continent. So they visited a few countries, including Kenya, with a view to collaborating with local institutions to establish a program in pediatric endocrinology on the continent. Mm-hmm. So I happened to be in the right place. At the right time. The right time. I yeah. got to know about this opportunity. And I got invited to their first local uh, workshop. And uh, they went, trained us through some basics just to see who would actually be interested in following through with this. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine my own excitement. That sounds so exciting that you were in that very first group of people as they were having this first workshop. So what happened after you did your application, after the workshop? Good things happened. I did submit. I was subjected to this competitive process. And uh, fortunately, I was the fellowship scholar for 2007. And so I was admitted. But that was before there was a local training program. 
So my admission meant that uh, I would undergo my training in an SP accredited institution in Europe. And I yeah. packed my bags. And in 2008, I left the country and went into training. Oh, wow. Which, which country did you go to do your training in? Yes, I went to Israel and I went to the city of Haifa. And that's where I did my training. And you're saying this as a family man. How was that for your family in terms of there's this exciting opportunity and you have your family? How was you know that process of giving the news to them and having to leave them for some time? Well, for me, I was um, just thinking about the training and I was all excited and doing all this correspondence and all the bureaucratic processes that you need to go through. And I was not thinking too much about the other things until the actual letter came that now you can travel. And then suddenly I realized that this was going to be more than a year separation from a very young family. And yeah. uh, some of them were too young to understand but now it started feeling the pressure of this separation. But I said, okay, I've got to do this. And uh, I was off. But it was only after I had left that um, the impact of the young kids, you know, yeah. made me didn't understand fully when I was leaving. But now when I was gone, it actually meant a lot. And it, it took a lot trying to maintain communication on a regular basis. And in those days, uh, having yeah. a phone call once a week, was not as easy as it sounds now. Right. <laughs> it was, it was really expensive. Process. Yes. It was expensive. <laughs> and uh, I remember I used to use a telephone booth down the road. And I would have to go and buy a calling card and then come and um, load it on this booth. And half the time it wouldn't work. So it was quite a complicated process, but I survived. And they also survived as well. But it was not easy yeah. for me and for them. And how was the actual training experience itself in Israel? Were they teaching in English or did you have to learn a new language? Yeah, the journey was quite exciting. So you learned and um, uh, my professor had made it clear that the department was able to support the training in English. And Israel has many international students from uh, Europe and uh, the Americas who, because of their lineage, uh, visited Israel for extended periods of time. And they were not familiar with teaching in English, so that made it uh, easier. I then realized immediately that all the files and the patient notes were written in Hebrew. Oh, wow. And yes. So the first thing is we're given an assignment to translate the files from Hebrew to English with the other fellow who could speak yeah. fairly good Hebrew. And not very yeah. good English. <laughs> and so I realized very quickly that I needed to learn some Hebrew to read, <laughs> yeah. to write, uh, to speak. And then there's also the aspect that uh, it's not only about life in the hospital. There's also a social life out there. So I needed to learn some language very quickly, at least a working knowledge. Yeah. And uh, that, that helped in settling. Wait, so you speak Hebrew, Dr. Guri. This is exciting to discover. <laughs> I do speak a bit. I can get by. <laughs> you can get by. You can you can be able to ask for water and nobody can talk badly about you behind your back. <laughs> yes, and I can read directions and a few things like that. <laughs> That's amazing. But then I'm just trying to think, because like right now, when you have something in a foreign language, you just feed it into Google Translate, worst case scenario, and hope that you can decipher it. But this is 
this is next level code switch that you're talking yeah. about at the time. This was pre-Google, you're right. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. And how was the actual learning of the endocrinology? What was that experience like, you know, delving into exciting, intricate subspecialty that you had described earlier? Yeah, it was a very steep uh, learning curve because the services were very well established. The patient load was huge. The um, laboratory and other diagnostic support was uh, tremendous. So you're moving from almost zero to close to 100% in a matter of weeks. So it's up to you to catch up with the, the knowledge level of the place, yeah. but the team was very good very supportive. It took many hours, many late nights, reading, spending time uh, with patients. The clinics were very busy. They would leave you completely exhausted. And when everybody else went for the weekend, yeah. you now took the books to go and read what you had seen in the clinic. But then the team was very organized and very mm -hmm. committed. And it was a wonderful learning experience. And had there been any time that there were any challenges during that time? I know you mentioned language was one of them and the steep learning curve. As a clinician, as a man, were there any challenges that you experienced during the time of your fellowship? There's always challenges with uh, adopting to a new environment. Some of them are cultural. You're used to maybe a certain way of life. You're used to particular diets. You're used to being close to your family. So that took some um, getting used to. But I must say that just the sheer workload kind of numbed one to some of these things, at least initially. It's until the second half that now, you know, you're a bit more comfortable and you have time to think about uh, all these things. But all in all, I would say that um, I was fortunate that the country was quite used to having very many visitors. It's a big tourist destination. So they're kind of accommodative to many different backgrounds and cultures. And I think that helped. And the team that was training me also had a lot of international experience. So they made my experience easy. I spent a lot of weekends at the house of my professor with his family because he understood that it was good to have a family away from home. So some of those challenges were made easier just by having people who are prepared to host international students. Then at the time I had left the country, Kenya had just gone through a difficult period, post-election uh, violence, 2008. And so there was always this nagging feeling whether people are at home are, are okay. But interestingly, at the same time, um, a war broke out um, in Israel, uh, in the north where, where I was. What? Um, so I was worried yeah. about them at home, yes. and yes. Uh, they were worried about me on the other side because uh, if the sirens went off, I had to be in a bunker. So we were both worried about each other. So some of those things made the experience a bit more difficult. I can't believe that you had to be in a bunker and have a bunker on standby during your fellowship. These are things that we've only read about in some history books, not actively experiencing them in our lifetimes. Yes, so uh, <laughs> that was a new experience. It wasn't meant to be part of uh, the fellowship. It just happened. I think it's so interesting. And I think one day, Dr. Nguri, for the record, I think you need to write this story, write a memoir, because this is interesting stuff, because for a lot of people, when we think about fellowship, people only think about the academics. And you're mm -hmm. talking about the political climate and the impact it had on your family. 
as well as on yourself. And you guys were on different, you know, you're on different continents. Um, and the politics was impacting you guys significantly. Yeah, it's it's so true. When you think about fellowship, you think about books and patience and love. Uh, but there's also a, another important aspect, which is the social. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned is that there was this program through ESPER. And one of the challenges that a lot of people who are aspiring for fellowship struggle with is funding. Are you able to talk about what the funding structure looked like for your fellowship? Well, I was very fortunate because uh, what ESPER had done was create a scholarship program to support different areas in their development of pediatric endocrinology. And um, that fund had been utilized in Eastern Europe until Eastern Europe was considered to be on its feet. And then the attention shifted to Africa. So the opportunity came with a fully funded scholarship that took care of tuition, living, travel. So I never had to worry about my livelihood on that side. And um, the government of Kenya, where I was working at the time, was so kind enough to grant study leave on full pay. So it meant that the family was taken care of on this side and I was taken care of on the other side by the scholarship. That is an amazing structure. And I'm so glad to hear that your family was being sorted on one hand. So you don't have to think about or worry about them raising income coming in on this side. And then you're able to actually focus in terms of just studying and doing what you are meant to do, you know, whatever took you to Israel. And when you mention Israel, I immediately think about church and how there are many people who've taken their journey there. Did you have, you know, and I'm just asking this, did you have a spiritual experience being in Israel? Talk about, <laughs> you know, the spiritual and the faith experience for you during that time. It's uh, inevitable. There's a lot of uh, history, religious history in the country in different cities from Jerusalem to Petra to everywhere. So it's quite um, an experience. And I met very many Kenyans who had come on their own spiritual journeys and yes. were surprised to hear that people do go to Israel for reasons other than pilgrimage. They were really surprised yes. <laughs> to find some of us there. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because I think for the longest time, before we started thinking about medical advances and agriculture, interestingly enough, People had thought about Israel mainly, you know, pilgrimage. So it's interesting to hear that you got to interact with Kenyans out there. And I'll do a bit of a fast forward to endocrinology now developing in Kenya. Were you involved in that sort of like process of fellowship starting out in the country? Yes, I was. So part of my scholarship and training was with a view to establishing a training program in the country. So. I did go, I finished my training, I came back. In parallel, the endocrinology training program was being built in Kenya. So the first program was um, basically run by international tutors. And the first class was actually admitted in 2008, at the same time as I was having training on the other side. So... My return coincided with uh, probably the second year of uh, training. And soon after, I joined the institution and the program. Within two years, I did take over as the director of the program. And as they say, the rest is history. That is such an interesting trajectory going from fellowship, and it sounds within a few years, being the director. 
during your fellowship training, now that they had that idea or plan that they were going to establish training programs, did they build any like leadership training or any medical education training into your fellowship, knowing that you take on a leadership role? Unfortunately, the training program was very tight. The scholarship conditions were very strict. The very strict timelines and the entire stay was dedicated to the clinical, the science and the clinical part of the training with very little time for anything else. However, because there was this view that um, I was going to transition into local faculty, I did get opportunities of exposure. I attended many events and conferences, both locally in Israel and uh, outside. However, just working with a team, because it's the same team that I was working with in Israel, and the head of the department, Professor Zev Hopak, is actually the founder of even the school and the idea of the school in Kenya. And he was our head in, in Haifa. So we, I got a chance for a one-on-one interaction for him throughout the stay. And even when he visited as a, a visiting tutor on the program to discuss uh, ways of running this program. Oh, wow. Big shout out to Prof. Zef Hoback. I feel like there was also mentorship that was ongoing throughout the fellowship and even after that, which is amazing to hear. And I'm, and I'm so glad you are perfectly positioned for that. Yeah, that was mentorship by excellence. And yeah. uh, I owe a big debt to Prof. Zef Hoback, who recently rested, but yeah. his legacy will live on for a long time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it's so amazing that you shared that because that's such an amazing thing for a lot of people who finish their fellowships to start thinking about ways to be able to mentor other people as they're starting their fellowships and how that transitions or translates into leadership and being able to take on leadership positions once they start working as a specialist. So thank you so much for sharing that. Having been director of the Endocrinology Fellowship Program, what was your biggest takeaway from that experience? Well, one is just the way the program was structured is that it was unique in that it was a multi-institution training program. Now, getting institutions to work together, even the local ones, was not a very familiar arrangement at the time. So the biggest learning was that if institutions work together, they can work miracles. The other lesson was that you actually must start. And I think that's something that Zev Hochberg and the team at ESPE understood very well. People must start somewhere and then continuously improve on the program. And that's what they did. So those were two key learnings that, you know, it really helps to collaborate and you start with what you've got and build it as you go along. That's so amazing to hear. I I feel like I'm having this front row seats to, you know, a combination of Leadership 101 and Legacy and Influence 101 in terms of the medical profession and just being able to set up some of these things. And it makes so much sense because I think there are times that I have come to you with an idea or there's something I want to do and I'm like, I didn't have this in place. And now I understand the ethos of just get started. What you have, just start. And so 
that's a really amazing thing to to hear about. And thank you so much for highlighting all those aspects. And you'll allow me to switch gears a little bit um, to talk about something called KPFP. What is KPFP and what is your role in KPFP? The KPFP stands for the Kenya Pediatric Fellowship Program dedicated to developing subspecialty training in Kenya and by extension to the region. It is embedded within the Kenya Pediatric Association. I lead that program as the program director. Our role starts with developing fellowship training programs, supporting institutions in developing those programs, in developing their own capacity to deliver those programs, and then finally in providing scholarships for pediatricians who would like to pursue training in those programs in a pediatric subspecialty. That's amazing to hear that the Kenya Pediatric Association, and I'm guessing in collaboration with some organizations, has thought about, you know, having this subspecialty training. Where was this idea, you know, where did it come from? Uh, this idea grew out of the experience of the African Pediatric Fellowship Program based um, in Cape Town. The program in Cape Town was envisaged to create a hub for subspecialty training for the continent. When the program ran for a few years, it was noticed that Kenya was one of the biggest beneficiaries of the program and that many Kenyans had enrolled on fellowship training programs in Cape Town. They had done very well and had a 100% completion rate. And many had returned to Kenya and were actually practicing their specialty. So it was very impressive that the country had first embraced the opportunity, had utilized it well, and had a good retention of graduates from the program. So it then begged the question, when is it that Kenya can now start rolling out its own fellowship programs in country? And it was felt by as early as 2016-17 that perhaps we had the critical number of specialists to start thinking about developing our own local programs. And uh, the Kenya Pediatric Association, that was an ongoing conversation, and uh, it was uh, progressed with the funder of uh, the Africa Pediatric Fellowship Program on whether that kind of support could be extended to Kenya with a view to developing a fellowship training hub. And that's how the Kenya Pediatric Fellowship Program was born. That's so amazing because it sounds sort of like a very, I want to say, pan-African collaborative, you know, effort learning a lot from um, Southern Africa and then sort of like exporting that. But then it doesn't just stay with one person. It's also just extending it to other people in the country and on the continent. Is it just for Kenyan medical practitioners who want to subspecialize or is it open for other regional countries to be able to come and do their fellowship? At the moment, the support that's available is only for Kenyans who are pediatricians working in the public sector. Now, when we support institutions to develop their training programs, we support them on the understanding that after the programs are established, we'll provide scholarships for Kenyan pediatricians working in the public sector. However, it does not stop the same 
training institutions, for example, the universities, from admitting other pediatricians from other countries, as long as those individuals will come with their own funding for their, for, for their training. That was designed in that way for a reason. One is that um, it was important that we first develop a good local product before opening it up to the international market. And two, there was really a big need, there was a big gap of subspecialty capability in many of our public hospitals. So there was a reason to skew that support towards the county hospitals because that's where a majority of patients are attended and that's where the lowest number of subspecialists was available. Having said that, the program was dynamic and as we probably go into a new phase, we're considering supporting persons, maybe not strictly in the public sector, but then the conditions for that will be made public in due course. That's so interesting to hear about, you know, the biggest gap being, you know, in the county facilities and, you know, there being that skew of specialists being, you know, focused in major towns like Nairobi. And this is like a very proactive effort to sort of decentralize that and have more subspecialties who are more available outside of Nairobi and in other regions of the country. In terms of subspecialties, which subspecialties are we talking about that are under the umbrella of KPFP currently in Kenya? Currently, there are six programs. Mm-hmm. We have um, infectious disease, endocrinology, neonatology, neurology, critical care. Okay. And in terms of the fellowships so far, how many have graduated through the KPFP since it started? So far, the program has been running from 2019. Uh, We've enrolled 26 fellows. Two-thirds of them have actually graduated, and we expect the rest to be graduating by the end of this year. The uptake has been... Uh, amazing. The distribution is we have fellows who have trained from 16 counties out of the 47 counties. Wow. And so far, fellows that have graduated have been redeployed in their counties of um, origin with a view to developing subspecialist services. And we do support them past the training period to make sure that mm-hmm. they reintegrate well and are able to have impact in their home institutions. Mm -hmm. That's amazing to hear. You know, when you say 26 in three going to the fourth year, that's that's not a small number. And this is, you know, likely to continue to grow. And I'm so glad to hear that we're already at 16 out of 47 counties and continuing to grow and develop from that within the first three years. So that's a really amazing thing to hear that KPFP has been able to do for the country. Have there been any barriers in terms of having this rollout of the fellowships through the KPFP? Yeah, there are a few challenges along the way. One is that um, the conditions for the support was that this would only go to pediatricians working in the Kenyan public sector. So it meant that they would all be staff of the county government. And so the county government would need to release them for two years to come to school. That's not always easy because in some places where there's a person with interest, they may be the only pediatrician 
or one of two pediatricians. So it's a big sacrifice on the part of the counties to release them, um, to continue supporting them in terms of payroll uh, while they come to study and the program supports them for the other aspects of training. So that was a challenge. Also, the um, distribution of uh, the applicants, because we say fellowship is usually driven by passion. It's very difficult to go to a particular county and say that we look at your health needs to be this, and so we need to train somebody in this area. Usually, it was structured that it would have to be the persons to demonstrate their interest, and our work is to support them. So there could be appear a mismatch where um, an area with the highest neonatal mortality, for example, which would look like a natural candidate for a training in neonatology, doesn't have somebody interested in that particular field. Well, another county that seems to be doing well actually has the people with interest in neonatology. So closing that gap is a part of the challenge. But all in all, we've had very good uh, engagement with uh, different instruments within the Council of Governors, the um, County Executive Council's caucus of health, which is a unit within the Council of Governors. And through that, uh, we've actually had good collaboration and all the applicants have actually been released and been able to take up their positions once selected. Mm -hmm. That's so helpful to hear. And also, even for people who are in positions of authority as they're hearing this, as well as mentors out there, you know, just being able to actively engage healthcare professionals from earlier on. Fellowship is like a passion project. And so starting very early and starting to have these conversations with doctors in, you know, earlier on in their, you know, practice is really helpful to, you know, help people sort of like gain their way and figure out how they can be of service while balancing that with being involved in passionate work. As we come to a close, what would be your parting shot or your words of wisdom for someone who's thinking about fellowship, for someone who's contemplating if they want to embark on this journey, what what would you say to them? Just do it. Don't think about it too long because time is running. I believe that uh, the first instinct is the right one. Uh, where you think the field you want to pursue first, that's probably where your passion lies. Don't consider too much whether you, you'll get the necessary support to practice your new skill because now the country has changed. There's much more support. The program KPFP is there to back you up. So you don't have to study the chessboard too much. Just follow your heart. Go where your passion leads you because things are different from what they were in 2008 where you had to navigate all these complex things almost on your own. There's now support. So just go for it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your words of wisdom, and this amazing framework that has unfolded in Kenya in terms of subspecialty training. And it sounds like the sky is the limit um, for our country and for our continent. So Asante Sana, Dr. Ngwiri, thank you so much for your time. And for those who have listened, I hope that, you know, hearing about this fellowship experience, as well as all that's happening within Kenya, things are within reach. And we'll put in links for the different institutions and programs that we have mentioned today that you can be able to peruse and find out more information. Until next time, I'd like to say bye. Paheri, see you later. 
so glad you stayed tuned. Please get the word out and share it with at least three people. Make this episode like a chain letter. Share it, share it, share it. Come back for the next leg of our safari where we'll be talking about... I think, for sure, call yourself for a meeting. Call yourself for a meeting. I love it. Yes, because you really need to know what it is that you love. I don't think it's advisable to just go because something is available. Because truly knowing myself, I know I would have been miserable had I done something else. Listeners are advised to use their own judgment and discretion when applying any information discussed in this and all podcast episodes to their specific situation. Always seek the advice of a qualified professional if you have any concerns or questions regarding a particular subject matter. This episode was sponsored by the Kenya Pediatric Fellowship Program. The overall goal of Kenya Pediatric Fellowship Program is to expand the capacity of training institutions to select, train, and deploy quality pediatric subspecialists, midwives, and pediatric nurses, and address the shortage and inequitable distribution of specialized child health workforce in the Kenyan public sector. You can find this and other episodes of this podcast on our website at www.fellowshipsafaris.org. You can also find all our episodes on all podcast platforms. Reach out to us on social media as Fellowship Safaris on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And our Twitter handle is at fellowshipsafar. You could also send us an email on fellowshipsafaris at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and interacting with what you have to say about the Fellowship Safaris podcast. It takes a village to make this podcast. The executive producer and original music is done by Mokavi Maweu. The sound engineer is Tevin Sudi with thanks to AQ Studios. Graphic design was done by Benjamin Mboya. We would like to give a special shout out to Josephine Karianjahe and Melissa Mbogwa of Africa Podfest. All rights reserved by Dr. Jerry Karianjahe and the Fellowship Safaris podcast.